Hello, you're listening to Culture Call, the life and arts podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, an editor in New York. Coming up on today's show. You know, those archives were never meant for people like me to look through. When the fascists were saving information, telegrams, documents of this war with Ethiopia, they never intended that I would walk into those archives and look at them through the eye of of someone who knew better. As a journalist, they were in the news business Mm -hmm. to think about the people who might be reading what we produce in a hundred years' time and how, you know, we're just the very, very first take on history that a lot of people are going to have very different views on in the years to come. Here we are. It's part five of our six-part series on how the events of 2020 are shifting culture. While my co-host Griselda Murray-Brown is on parental leave, teaching her daughter Matilda important things like how to sleep through the night, I'm here with you trying to dissect where we are and where we're going. The first week in December coincides with the FT Weekend Magazine's annual Women of the Year issue. This is an issue entirely about and almost entirely by impressive and influential women. It's a great read, and I'm telling you this for two reasons. First, our guest this week is one of the extraordinary women celebrated in this issue. Her name is Maza Mengiste. Maza is the author of the Booker Prize shortlisted epic novel, The Shadow King. And second, my FT friend this week who's joining me later on is one of the extraordinary women who puts this Women of the Year issue together. Actually, she puts all the issues together. Her name is Alice Fishburne. Alice is editor of FT Weekend Magazine, and She's going to tell us exactly how one goes about putting an issue like this together when the year is 2020. Now, let me introduce you to Maza Mengiste. Maza is the author of two extremely popular historical fiction novels. They're both about Ethiopia. And she's also a professor of English. She teaches fiction writing at Queens College here in New York. She was born in Ethiopia in 1971. That was just before the Ethiopian Revolution. And her family fled when she was four years old. They finally settled in the U.S. when she was seven. Maza's first novel explores that revolution. It's called Beneath the Lion's Gaze. Her second novel, The Shadow King, came out recently, and that goes back much further. It was right before the outbreak of World War II. Mussolini's Italian army came to Ethiopia to invade. And one of the ways that Ethiopia won this war was that the women fought too. Women were actually pivotal. And this novel is primarily from the point of view of one of these women. You don't need to have read it to get a lot out of this conversation, but you should read it. Maza's work is asking really important questions about what makes a collective memory and what gets turned into history. I just don't think there's anyone better to speak to about our themes this season of how we'll remember 2020 and what's possible now. This novel is also really pertinent to what's happening in Ethiopia today. The country is on the brink of a civil war, and as Maza put it on Twitter, it's clear in this conflict that those who have the least will suffer the most. Relatedly, heavy on my mind these days is a similar humanitarian disaster in Armenia. The details are complicated, and I'll include a few links about both Ethiopia and Armenia in the notes if you'd like to find out more, and you should. 
But the crux is this. In September, Azerbaijan attacked a region called Nagorno-Karabakh. Indigenous Armenians have lived there for thousands of years, and Armenians have very little power in the region. So in a short war, they lost much of that land, thousands of lives, their historic churches, and their homes. And now 100,000 Armenians are displaced. They are refugees. And it's that pattern that power can throw their weight around and innocent people who have no power will suffer. I'm a member of the Armenian diaspora. So I was very grateful to talk through these patterns with someone who thinks a lot about this. This conversation with Maza is really one of the most memorable I've had on the show. Just one more thing before we start. Maza and I spoke from our respective homes. She's in Queens. I'm in Brooklyn. And as my producer Lena likes to say, New York never sleeps, nor does it ever shut the hell up. (laughs) Okay, here's our conversation. Maza, thank you so much for joining me on Culture Call. Oh, thank you, Lila. It's wonderful to be here. So you have written two gorgeous historical novels about Ethiopia. You were born and spent your childhood there. And I actually didn't know until I read your work that Ethiopia is the only African nation that was never colonized. Can you maybe help set the scene for listeners of the history that inspired your novels, particularly your second novel, The Shadow King? Absolutely. Well, The Shadow King is set in 1935, and it tells the story of Mussolini's invasion of Ethiopia in order to colonize it. It was the last African country that was independent, and Italy wanted its place in the sun, as (laughs) Mussolini said. And so he invaded. And this was a, a confrontation that I heard about growing up. And the stories were usually about a poorly equipped Ethiopian military uh, who really only had outdated rifles and spears. And they were attacking the most sophisticated military in the world at that time and running into tanks and heavy artillery. And after five years, they won. Yeah. So if you can imagine what that was like as a child, to hear those stories and to have people in your family pointed out and you're told this person fought in this battle, this person fought in this battle. And it gave me a sense of what it meant to be Ethiopian. Mm. And I was proud of that. So the book is taking in that history. And I wanted to tell the story from both an Ethiopian perspective, but also an Italian perspective. You know, what did the common soldier imagine this would become? And so writing this book was really a chance for me to explore these different aspects, but ask larger questions about war and the relationships and intimacies that inevitably develop when any force is in a country for five years. Why was it important for you to tell both perspectives? Well, war is generally a confrontation between two opposing forces, if not more. Mm. And it's impossible to tell a a war story from really just one perspective. I, I wanted to look past stereotypes and look at complicated questions of what it means to be human, Mm. what it means to not only to be a soldier, but to be a man in war when you are told that war will make a man out of you. And what does that mean when the person that you are shooting at as an Italian or the person you are fighting next to as an Ethiopian is a woman? 
What does that do to your sense of masculinity and manhood? You know, what did Italians think when they saw these women in dresses charging at them? Right. This novel was inspired by real women soldiers who played such a pivotal role in this war. And there were so many beautiful scenes of Italians watching women in white sort of coming over and over the hills towards them more and more. And I just, it was so vivid. And I was so moved to read a historical fiction book about war where the women were like right there. They were the ones telling the story. They were often the ones leading the battles. Like it felt like it was a war won by women. The main character, Hirut, who's sort of the hero, it seemed like she had the perception that she would be remembered as having helped win this war, when in reality, it doesn't seem like history remembers yeah. women in this war. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> it it made me think about the way that history is remembered and retold, because there have always been women in moments of conflict throughout world history. We can go back to hundreds of years BC mm. and women have been there, but somehow they have become forgotten. Yes. I think that all women, like most human beings, in in moments of, of great, you know, significance, assume that their actions are going to be remembered and recognized. And Hirut is no different, despite her best hopes. She went home and became a, a woman again. Yeah. And I, I think that that has happened repeatedly over the course of history because we look towards those in uniform, those who tell the stories, those who command the wars, who then give the awards to people who look like them. Yeah. And that's, that's how we interpret this. You know, I just want to go back a little bit to sort of understand what brought you to the point of being ready to write this book. This seems like a story that's been important to your family and to your sense of identity and to your culture for a long time. How did it come together? Yeah, well, there are a lot of writers who will tell you that since they were a child, they knew that they wanted to be a writer. Mm -hmm. You know, they wanted this and it, it was not part of my world. It wasn't part of my sense of what was possible for me. I was working first in advertising and then the film industry. That's when I really began to understand that there were ways to conceptualize stories and make them into something that you could share with others. Mm. And that's when this story started formulating in my head, but I really understood the work it would take to make this story the way I wanted. I didn't know enough about World War II, and I wrote my first book set in 1974 during the revolution, not only because I felt that story was urgent, but because I wanted to practice writing. Mm. I wanted to practice research. I wanted to understand how do you put a book together? And the research led me to the women. Right. I had no idea about them. And it took a while before I found them. And that's also a testament to how deeply they had been hidden. Yeah. Um, I saw a photo of you holding the first draft of your novel that said that you had to cut <laughs> it nearly in half. <laughs> <laughs> which sounds like not an easy feat. Um, and you, you have said that you, you know, did a lot of your own historical research in flea markets and you learned yeah. Italian. And yeah, yeah. Where, did you, where did it start? I didn't realize it, but it started even before I was writing my first novel, before I thought about writing at all. I started collecting f these photographs from 
1935 and this conflict. Mm. I was doing it at that time because I loved the pictures. I loved the black and white photos. I thought it was interesting. I liked this history. I would just collect them without any sense of anything. So now looking back, I realize I was already starting to think of this mm-hmm. without knowing why. But it wasn't until I was in Italy touring for my first book. And I was at a bookstore and a man during the Q&A stood up and he said, I want to talk about 1935. And the entire room went tense. Oh, wow. And people were telling him, it's not the time, sit down. And he insisted. And he said, my father was a pilot during this war. And at this point, he became really emotional. And he said, he dropped the poison on your people. Mm. How do I ask your forgiveness? And he started crying. Wow. And I didn't know what to say. I think I said something to the effect of having these conversations kind of is a forgiveness, you know, and he said, please don't leave until I come back. He ran home and came back with a self-published book of his father's photographs, diary entries, letters home. Oh, wow. And, and he gave it to me and he said, this is yours. Read it, please. It's yours. Do, do whatever you want. And right. when I got back to my apartment and, and I started looking through it and looking at these photographs, I realized, my God, the history is here. You know, the daily encounters with Ethiopians, with East Africans, with people in the unit, they were there. It's in the diaries, not in newspaper accounts. And that's where the research really took off and sent me to antique stores, sent me to vendors, sent me everywhere across Italy looking for these things. And you were looking for for photographs and diary entries and things that were not collected by the state. Absolutely. Because all those other things were censored. Right. You know, and what was in the archives were what the fascists wanted to keep. And that was usually their version of history. Yeah. You know, you talk about these sort of, they're almost like alternate archives. You had to do, I think the New York Times had called it detective work. (laughs) Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, you had said that it was sort of an effort to decolonize the archives. Can you tell me what a little bit about what that means? Yeah, it, it's, you know, those archives were never meant for people like me to look mm. through. When the fascists were saving information, telegrams, documents of this war with, with Ethiopia, they never intended that I would walk into those archives and begin to look at them through the eye of of someone who knew better Mm. than what they were saying all the time. But the thing was also that I had to go to Italy in order to get information on history that involved my people, frankly, my relatives, my country. Mm -hmm. And decolonization also includes not just going in and beginning to push against and reckon with that history, But it's also that act of making that history available to those countries that should be readily available in Ethiopia for historians, for curators, for students to look at. 
as much as it is in Italy. It needs to be a global archive. There are documents in the British Library. There are documents in other archival places where Africans, they don't have access. Archives are not innocent. Mm, They are kept, maintained by power. And decolonization is a way to begin to share some of that information. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Maza, can you tell me a little bit about about your childhood and sort of what brought you to the U.S.? Yeah. Well, I, I was born in Ethiopia and I was young during the early days of the revolution when the revolution mm-hmm. started. And those memories for me, they were they're crystal clear. Mm. It seems like those memories were uh, in a in a kind of time capsule. Wow. My early years in the United States are a blur. <laughs> I don't really remember those, but these years in Ethiopia, I remember with such distinct detail that my parents and my family are, are shocked by the things that I can call up. And I think this is what informed my decision to write about the revolution in my first book, I had these questions that that my family would not answer because as I had memories, but I didn't know how to put them any, into any historical context. Yeah. I couldn't understand why soldiers were breaking in, why these vans were coming to our house. I couldn't understand why suddenly people were just no longer there. Mm. And even now... You know, I'm still getting stories from that time, but I realized the trauma of of war and the trauma of revolution and conflict affects families for generations. And so we'll have that first generation that, that actually experienced it. They don't want anything to do with recollecting these things. Right. And then you have the next generation that comes that starts asking questions. And that was me. Right. And it informed every part of who I am in ways I didn't even imagine. And I think this is why also my second book dealt with war again, because outside of the framing of this, these historical moments, I'm really concerned and really invested in what we do with the aftermath, what we do with survival how do we begin to talk about this? And I know that other countries and other nations, other groups of people have been asking the same questions. And what this has done is put me in conversation with a global community, looking at different historical moments, trying to figure out how can we speak of these things so they don't happen again. Yeah. Uh, and I think that it's absolutely vital now in the United States that we continue to have this conversation because we have children in concentration camps. Right. And one day they will tell their story. And we have to be ready to reckon with that history and to bring our own histories into conversation with theirs. Yeah. Uh, and we have to have the language now to help them. You know, Maza, part of your work spoke to me for many reasons, but one is my grandparents survived the Armenian mm-hmm. genocide and much of their story is lost. Yeah. Um, as you said, you know, my mother asked the questions and they wanted to forget. And there's so much that I wish I knew about my great grandmother, who was a real hero. You know, she did a lot of 
very resilient and genius things to save herself and her son. And so much of it she never told us. And so much of that history has been destroyed. And I'm sure so many people who read your work feel that pain too of of lost history mm. and the lost chance to ask. Yeah. And, you know, there, there are so many parts of the book where you share what people are experiencing, especially in the brutality of it. And then you write things like, you know, she saw this, but she'll never tell anyone mm. she saw it when they ask. Yeah. Um, and I guess, how do we do that work mm. now? <laughs> I mean, this is, these kinds of, conversations, the conversations of the descendants of survivors beginning to talk, Mm -hmm. maybe not about our own specific individual histories, so that we can start filling the gaps of history and historical memory Mm -hmm. that can then lead us to other things. I have a, a, a photographic project that I have put online called project3541.com. Yes. And asking people for stories, photographs of their relatives that were involved in this conflict between Italy and Ethiopia in 1935. What has been really surprising to me, even though it shouldn't, is that I've had both Italians who are, who are Catholic, but also Jewish Italians yeah. who have come to me to say, can you help me find information about my grandfather? about my grandmother, about my mother who was in a camp, who was Jewish in Eritrea. Can you help me find? And I'm I'm beginning to realize that our histories intersect in ways that we can't even begin to fathom until we start to talk. And, you know, your grandmother was a survivor from the Armenian genocide. There were orphans from that Armenian genocide taken to Ethiopia Yes. Right. They were the, called like the 40 orphans. Mm. Um, there is a sizable Armenian population who fled that genocide and made a home in Ethiopia. And this is where our histories, when and if we begin to speak of them more, we can start filling in larger gaps because right. it intersects in ways that we can't imagine. Um, and I really believe that this history is much more complicated. Yeah. Um, I was moved also because as I was reading, I felt like there were some deep truths about dehumanization in the book or, or how we compartmentalize or how humans can sort of pick and choose who gets terrorized. There were a lot of examples of it for me. There's the Italian Colonel Fucelli, who is an awful man. He terrorizes Ethiopian people, but then he helps protect one of his Jewish soldiers. And then there's that soldier who is a photographer and he's violating Ethiopian prisoners with his camera, um, but he feels this connection to Hirut. They're both brutalizing people, but also showing tenderness and care to others. And it makes me think about how layered this all is. I'm curious what you were trying to do there. Well, it would be much easier to make people less complicated. Yeah. It would be much easier to blunt cruelty to a single note. And I think that fiction gives us the opportunity to delve into all the ways that human beings are nuanced and all the ways that cruelty is often hand in hand with these small acts of kindness or mercy. And there are 
very few people that I think exist that are purely one thing, though I do think the other side completely, absolutely exists. I wanted to think about the ways that even even the person who is the most brutal and the most cruel still had a set of ethics that he would not cross. Right. Because I think that is the reality for, for most human beings. You published this book in 2019 now. It was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Congratulations. Thank you. When I was reading your book within the context of 2020, there were a lot of parallels that were kind of swirling around in my mind. One was the urgency of the fight this year against authoritarianism and fascism and the far right. Another is sort of the movement for Black Lives that like Black and Brown people were leading these protests this year and primarily at the front of the line were Black women. Black women actually really turned the election in the U.S. They turned Georgia blue among so much more. They voted over 90% for um, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Um, You know, you wrote this book before the pandemic. What do you think we can take from it now? I think there is that sense that just because a conflict is declared over, it doesn't mean it's over. Yeah. That the after effects, the hatreds, the bigotries are still there. Mm. And the traumas of what's been experienced are still there. We're somehow, thankfully, moving out of this administration, but there's still so much to, to do. There's still so much to rise up against. We have to force change as much as we have forced hope right now. Yeah. You know, it's one of the reasons in the book that I started the book in 1974, because I wanted to consider the aftermath of conflict through an individual, through Hirut. What scars and memories does she carry? How can she get rid of them? What is forgiveness? I mean, this is something that we have to also think about as a nation. How do we or should we begin to forgive? Yeah. Those people that have voted for an authoritarian and brutal government in this country. How do we begin to reckon with this? What's so compelling about about your work in this conversation is that there's two things happening. How do we continue to deal with and talk about and improve the telling of the stories of the past, but also how do we do what we can for the present Listeners are going to roll their eyes when I ask you this because I say every episode that I've been really obsessed with how history will remember this mm. time. And last weekend, I went to the Rockefeller tree, <laughs> which is <laughs> the New York City Christmas yeah. tree. The, you know, it's in Midtown for tourists to admire. And as you might have seen, it's like practically dead this year. It's diseased and they opened <laughs> it up and half of it fell <laughs> to the ground. And it felt like so very 2020. <laughs> Yeah. I thought, you know, this is going to make the history right. books. Like, even the tree couldn't do it. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to see it. So yeah. I went. And when I was there, I, like, took a twig from the ground and I put it in my pocket because mm, I thought... That's good. This is something. This is a physical object from this time. Absolutely. Um, like, this might make it feel real. Yeah. And, uh, and I guess I'm curious how you're thinking about that. Like, how do we record this time? Well, I think exactly what you did 
I have been thinking about how do we establish all the different experiences of this history so that not just one is remembered. Mm. And I think that one of the ways has been something that people have been doing for for generations, which is keeping journals, keeping diaries, writing down things. It is a way of witnessing that carries us into the future. It is for a future generation. And if there's anything that I would urge for everyone to be doing right now is to record your day, even if it's two sentences. Mm. You know, it doesn't have to be a huge prolific statement on the government or politics. It's those small moments, those individual, personal, intimate moments and fears and triumphs that matter. The fact that you went to that tree and collected that branch, that should be noted, you know, because 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years from now, somebody will say, this happened in a year where all of these other things happened too. I can't urge it enough. I I have Mm. been absolutely indebted to certain diaries from World War II helping me to understand the human cost of this. And these were ordinary people, but they made a statement that overrode all of these historians and archives that I was I was looking through. I feel that your book is expanding the collective understanding of this history from the 1930s or even changing it. And I'm curious how it's been received in Italy and in Ethiopia. Uh, well, in Italy, who are somewhat aware of this history are eagerly awaiting the book. The book will be published in spring of 2021. Mm. It will be interesting to see what happens when it goes out to the larger population because the history is, is uncomfortable. Yeah, It's not something that has been discussed enough. There are writers in Italy who are doing the work already who are publishing books, essays, newspaper articles about this war. Um, So I'm joining into the conversation, but it will be really interesting to see what happens there. In, In Ethiopia, people have been wonderfully receptive to the story. You know, Ethiopia is in the midst of a conflict that is heartbreaking and and devastating. And it's interesting to see people putting my novel in conversation with this conflict as a a way to talk about what do we do? How do we deal with the aftermath? How are we taking care of civilians right now? You know, what's happening to women and girls in, in a potential civil war that's brewing? And those conversations are happening. And I've been really, really happy for the support that it's gotten. Yeah. Um, Maza, I'm curious about what role you think literature plays now in helping us interpret this time. Is it possible for us to make art about this time while it's still happening? You're also a professor. You know, what were other writers and what were other artists doing in times like these? I think that there is writing that's starting to come out. It's nonfiction. These are personal essays about Mm -hmm. living through a pandemic and living through this administration. But I think what fiction does is take the long view, look at the ramifications of this, look at it in context. And that takes reflection and that takes some time. And I I don't think we're quite there yet. I Mm. think that part of the history of this moment 
has to also be the history of those detention centers, has to yes. be the history of migration and immigration, whether it's at the border of Mexico or the Mediterranean Sea or in those gulags in Libya. Like that is part of this moment. And we, we're not the ones to write it. But you said I'm a professor and I, uh, you know, I'm teaching online and I'm mm. teaching undergraduate and graduate MFA students, creative writing students. And I've been waiting for the COVID stories. I've been waiting for the pandemic stories and they're not writing them. Really? That I was really surprised by. What are they writing about? My God, it's so varied. Like, not relationships, but they're writing about divorces. Huh. The, the graduate students, they're writing speculative fiction that's almost West-like. Right. They are writing, you know, people in the, in the deep South from the poor white people who are confronting their poverty. It's all these things are coming up. It's so varied, right. but not pandemic. And I'll usually get a bunch of vampire stories, <laughs> you know, these, wow. not one. And I find that fascinating. They're really digging into my undergrads, you know, addiction to Adderall or to um, pain medication. It's coming out. It's been really interesting to see this. It's almost like, the pandemic as content isn't what they want. Yeah. Everything is so much more vivid or every feeling is so much more intense right now. And I think that it has made us confront parts of ourselves. And that's also what's coming out. Yeah. They're, they're focused on themselves. Wow. And I found that very interesting. Mm. No one's ready yet. Yeah. Yeah. No one's ready Omaza, well, thank you. You've given me so much to think about, especially about how interconnected um, all of this is. Mm. I guess my last question is just, our listeners are always looking for cultural discovery and what people are reading and watching and listening to. Um, and I'm curious if you have any recommendations. Oh my goodness. <laughs> uh, yes. I um, There's a book called, I, I think it's, it's called Afterlives mm. by Abdul Razak. Gurna. It is an absolutely beautiful, gentle, loving story of people who are living in East Africa during German colonialism, mm. which is also a brutal history, but this is focusing on the intimate lives. He is a master storyteller, and I would recommend that heartily um, to everyone. So there's another book called Rainbow Milk by Paul Mendez. That is a book of a young black man in the UK, gay, but also part of the Jehovah Witness religion. It's a coming of age story, but also a reckoning with religion and faith. And the one one more book I would recommend <laughs> that is uh, by is uh, Dasha Drindic, a Croatian writer, the late Dasha Drindic, who was also someone very dear to me. She wrote a book called Trieste, it's a novel that deals with World War II, how it played out in Italy and tells the story of a Jewish uh, survivor. But the book is much bigger than this. It reckons with so many different aspects of the history and the aftermaths. It's a magnificent book, and I would recommend it to everyone interested wow. in grappling with different kinds of history. Wow. Um, Umaza, thank you so very much for your time, for those recommendations. This was such a pleasure and honor to, to speak with you. Thank you, Lila. This was wonderful. Thank you so much. 
I am now here with Alice Fishburn. Alice, uh, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Lila. Hi. I'm just going to take a second to embarrass you. Um, Alice is the editor of FT Weekend Magazine, which is a weekly magazine that comes in the FT's Weekend Edition in the UK only, although we're petitioning to make that magazine global because I love it. Um, It has some of our best long-form reporting among recipes and wine and columns and so many other things. But when Alice and I met, I was new to the FT and she's taken a generous chance on my writing and the writing of many of my peers and is an incredible editor and one of the most active readers I know, which is very relevant to this conversation. So thanks, Alice, for for joining me. Thanks for having me. I've been trying to get on Culture Call for a long time. (laughs) I've made it, finally. Yeah. So you also read Maza's book. I'm curious sort of um, what you thought of it. I really loved it. I mean, I'd heard all about it from various people and it was on my must-read list. And then we landed her as an article in the magazine for our upcoming women's issue. And she's great in that as well. It's just an absolutely gorgeous piece of writing. You know, one of the things that stood out both from the book and the interview is she's just so nuanced. And in this world where everything's so black and white and people get so easily divided into good and bad, she just doesn't do that. Everybody is sort of a 360 look and there's Mm. the positive and the negative in their characters. And I just, I... I'm just just so impressed by how she told the story and managed to maintain that the whole way through. Yeah, that's such a hard thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought it was very interesting how she described remembering her childhood in Ethiopia in this crystal clear way. And that she spoke very movingly about that. And it's obviously hugely informs her writing. I also liked what she said about how that first book was like her trying to understand the things that she had seen but not understood as a child. And that often the generation that experiences those things mm-hmm. like did not want to talk. Um, and it was up to her to figure out what those questions are and to tell that story. And something that I hadn't thought about until she had mentioned it is that experience of widespread trauma is... Of course, happening now, immigrant children in the U.S. who've been put in cages, they will be telling their stories one day. And are we ready to make sure that those stories are not just defined by whoever is in power, but also defined by them? Yeah, no, I think that that was really really fascinating. And I mean, even not on a lesser scale, but even living through a pandemic, I mean, I know that's what your whole series has been about in some ways, is sort of analyzing where we are now. And I think it's it's sometimes especially tricky as journalists who are, you know, our job is reactive. We're in the news business mm-hmm. to think about the people who might be reading what we produce in 100 years' time. And, you know, we're just the very, <laughs> very first take on on history that a lot of people are going to have very different views on in the years to come, potentially. Right. And it will always be online. <laughs> yes. <laughs> For someone to yeah. Um, Actually, when Maza and I were talking about like creative responses to this time and the difference between sort of quick versus longer term ones and that fiction is is a very long view on an event. So it may be too early for something like the pandemic. But you are editing some of the most creative nonfiction writing that comes through the FT. 
I'm curious, like, what you find yourself commissioning now, what sort of really works, what doesn't work, what sort of pandemic story are you like, no, I'm not, I'm not taking that, that pitch. Um, well, all things could be all pandemic all the time. I think, you know, if our, if our colleagues on the news desk are doing the sort of very, very short-term immediate take and Marza and her equivalents are doing the much longer term take you know we're much nearer the short term end so yeah although I do try and commission some creative writers you know for example we had Siri Husvet writing about um the march wave in New York and that was a very beautiful lyrical piece of writing mm. and on life and arts they've commissioned Aaron Darty Roy and others to do to do similar but a lot of what we do is looking at the past three months or six months and trying to build a narrative around what happened, get the voices who maybe wouldn't have spoken out in the moment, but now Mm. can to give more context. And, you know, I like to think that that both illuminates what's happened and in some cases writes wrongs or corrects the record, but also kind of can point the way towards what is going to happen. So recently we had a big cover on pandemics of the future by our environment correspondent. And that was fascinating because it was all the stuff that's been coming out now all of the virus hunters Mm. working in in forests with great apes all over the world but they're talking about what they're doing now in terms of what it might illuminate down the road we're always trying to kind of keep things moving forward so that has kind of uh guided some of my commissioning around this and i'm curious you know you said you take the three month or the six month view and you and the team are so kind of keenly aware of watching the narrative change and finding where the narrative is and might be Are there people or themes or ways that you're choosing that are different now that we've been through 2020? (laughs) Well, definitely. I mean, just to quickly take the food and drink issue before we go on to the women's one, Mm -hmm. um, you know, doing a food and drink issue at a time where no restaurants are open is a very (laughs) different thing. And But, you know, it is also the food and drink Christmas issue is intended to be, you know, a sort of a celebration of the good things in life. And so, Yeah. yeah, we definitely have to respond to that. And... With the women's issue, I mean, in some ways that's easier because every year with the women's issue, we try and look at the people who've really made a difference, had a big year um, in the preceding year. And obviously this year there have been two standout things that have happened. One is COVID-19 and the other is the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, you know, w- when we had our list of, OK, who are the, who are the change makers, who are the women in the forefront of all of these, it, it, it included people who had been involved in both of those things. Can you give me some examples? Uh, yes, we've got Patrice Coulors, who's the co-founder of Black Lives Matter. A lovely interview with her. Rula, our, our editor here at the FT, has interviewed Ursula von der Leyen, who is the first female president of the European Commission. It's her first year on the job, much like Rula, actually. Obviously, she didn't see the pandemic coming into that's completely defined her year trying to get a European support package. We've got Dr. Machido Shidiso Moetti, who's the head of the World Health Organization in Africa, mm-hmm. Professor Sarah Gilbert, who was the woman who led research into the Oxford vaccine, wow. and then people like Fang Fang, the Chinese author, who was like one of the first voices out of Wuhan when it was in lockdown. And her blog went completely viral in China and then globally as she described what it was like living in a city that was on lockdown, you know, months before all the rest of us yeah. got to experience firsthand what that might be like. Mm. One of my favorite facts about the issue now is that we we try and have all of the photographers and journalists be women. It's not always possible. One of our excellent male journalists does sneak into this, but <laughs> he's the only one. In fact, he stands alone. Uh, and, you know, we, we think it's really important to have to have women contributing behind the bylines as well as in the interviews. Yeah. 
Very cool. Um, you know, Alice, as you know, one of the themes for this season is sort of what might be possible now that might not have seemed possible before. This novel was up for the Booker Prize. Uh, it didn't win, but I wonder whether awards like these, like sort of how they will hold up. Um, I wonder if the winner matters less now. I was thinking about last year when Bernadine Evaristo had to share her win with Margaret Atwood and the Turner Prize nominees agreed to share the prize. And yeah, I guess I'm curious if you have any thoughts about how much power these prizes have or will have. I mean, I think where they've always had power is in elevating names and getting people, writers, books we might not have heard of or might not have read, you know, in front of us. And I I sort of hope yeah. that that power remains because I do think it's it's important. And actually, one of the nice things about lockdown and one of the takeaways has been that people yeah. are reading more than ever and buying more books than ever and listening to more voices than ever. And I think that the pandemic sort of ripped a layer of skin off in some ways, hasn't it? And mm. left us all a bit more a bit more vulnerable and a bit more aware of our own mortality and a bit more keen to make sure that what we're investing our time and energy in is really worthwhile. And that applies to to books as much as, as anything else. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite pieces that you've written is a piece about the year when you uh, only read books written by women. The thing that I learned more than anything is that you read a, a lot of books in a year. I was astounded. Alice, how many books did you read that year? Uh, I think it was around 50 or something, though, you know, I was very pregnant that year, so I had even more reading time than usual. <laughs> I mean, I love reading. I find it a salve for pretty much everything in life, and God knows we've needed that this year. A bit like reverting back to comfort food. I've definitely reverted back to comfort reading, so lots of the old favourites have come out, and I haven't regretted that at all. But actually, weirdly, one of the books that I have loved the most, in fact, probably the book I've loved the most this year, was Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell, which mm. I don't know if you've read it, but it's about yeah. um, it's about the loss of Shakespeare's son to a plague. And so you wouldn't think that that was very escapist, but it was just <laughs> so beautifully done and mm. I absolutely loved it. So I guess that goes to show that, you know, books can appeal even if they touch uncomfortably close to your own experience in any given moment. Yes. Alice, uh, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show and for your time and your wisdom. And um, please come back soon. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. Now I know I can get on. I feel like I've, I've ticked a life <laughs> box. And you've got Grizz back next week, right? I know. It's going to be exciting. You definitely heard that right. The next episode on December 18th is our last. And who better to debrief with than Griselda Murray-Brown, our very own. She will be dialing in from maternity leave to join me as I round off this special season. Our guest for that episode is the brilliant artist Chantel Martin. You should look her up on Instagram. She has really wonderful things to say about creativity. I've seen her speak once, and I still think about that conversation. And I will include a few links in the show notes. Here are some quick thoughts from listeners. Felix Pilgrim wrote to say that he thought The Social Dilemma, which was recommended by Io Tillett Wright in episode three, was not getting enough love. He asked whether it's possible to burst the toxic social media bubble and wondered what kind of effect that would have on what sort of culture gets created and how we consume it. He also recommended the Swedish comedy drama on Netflix called Love and Anarchy. 
A lot of you wrote in to say you loved Simon Shama last episode. It was really a hit. Um, I totally agree. Thank you. Simon feels the love. Samuel Levy specifically wrote in to say this. It's distressing to see the rapid progress made by populism pulling the card of moral relativism. But we've been there before and we've made it back. He suggested an essay by Eric Hoffer from 1963. That's really interesting. I've included that in the show notes. Please keep them coming. You can email me at culturecall@ft.com. You can message me on Instagram. I'm at Lila Rapp or on Twitter. I'm at Lila Rapp and the show is at FT Culture Call. You didn't ask, but in case you were wondering, this week I am reading Kylie Reed's novel, Such a Fun Age, which is about to come out in paperback. And I'm really struggling to put it down. She's an excellent writer and the plot is incredible. It's very relevant to this time. I'd recommend it. Also, like all of you, I am watching The Queen's Gambit. Please message me your thoughts. I have a lot to say. That's it for this episode. If you like what you hear, as a holiday gift, I'd be very grateful if you shared this with a few of your friends. You can tag us on your Instagram story. You can tell your friends who are looking for new podcasts. Or you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, which makes a huge difference. I've been Lila Raptopoulos. Culture Call is produced by Lena Prestwood at Scenery Studios. And our music is composed by Tristan Cassell-Delavoie. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.